How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. You might not know this, but before I record an episode, I like to break a sweat. And I do that using the ChopFit. Over the course of the past year, the ChopFit has allowed me to lose weight, tone up my body, and feel even more amazing about myself. A feeling that you should all feel about yourself as well. If you use this code, SpearChop10, you get $10 off your order. Once again, use code SpearChop10 for $10 off your ChopFit order. It'll change your life. Thank you. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. And today, uh, to kick off our month of October, this idea I had of everything horror or scary related for the month of October in honor of Halloween, uh, we have the author, uh, good friend, Dacker Storker. Dacker is the great grand nephew of the legendary Brown Storker. Dacker is also the author of Dracula the Undead in 2009. Dracula. Dracul, uh, which he co-authored with J.D. Barker in 2018. Uh, well, I, I guess the film rights have now been kind of optioned out to Paramount Studios, which is something we want to talk about. And recently, the versions embraced in 2021, uh, former pentathlon athlete coach, uh, incredible historian, researcher. Uh, Dacker, it's great to have you on here today. John, thank you. It's, uh, it's my pleasure. You know, October is the big month, you know. In the Stoker family, it always feels like this is our Super Bowl. You know, everybody focuses on, you know, what happened in the Dracula world? You know, what do you know about Bram Stoker? There's always something new, but my goodness, you know, October is the month that we really focus on uh, on everything to do Dracula. So great to be on your show. Glad to chat with you today. Now, I know before we went live, you mentioned you just went for a bike ride. I know you very you are very much into uh, staying fit and active, but with your background in the the pentathlon and coaching at the Olympic levels and just the overall, I was considered overall incredible athletes. Not a lot of people could do what you did. Uh, how has kind of staying fit uh, helped you not only physically, but mentally when it comes to writing, is there an equal parallel that kind of keeps you balanced? Yeah, there is. And I'm glad you asked that because, you know, I didn't start as a writer uh, and I didn't start as a great athlete, as you know, and, and, and you yourself work out like crazy in martial arts and everything else. You, you, you have to put in the work. And the same, there's a parallel between my, my training to, to become a modern pentathlete. Um, very similar years later when I started writing. You know, it was doing the grunt work, doing the research, you know, getting shot down, you know, missing things, having bad reviews, picking yourself back up, going back at it using a team approach you know i wasn't i did an individual sport but it involved a team of people team of coaches and then when i started coaching the same thing and the same thing in writing you know i i decided to get into writing late in the game and i've decided to use good authors to collaborate with and i also participate you know with many other researchers in the sort of bram stoker world we share information so there is a lot of parallels and, and then the final one is just personally, to get into good headspace, you know, to sit down and do my writing that day, the creative stuff or the research stuff, I got to burn off some energy. You know, I need to get into a good place. Uh, I've had both my hips replaced, so I don't wow. do too much running anymore, but I do swimming and bike riding. And when I'm into that, 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 that sort of regime where I can kind of let my mind drift, it's amazing how many cool creative thoughts come up when I say, okay, on this ride, I'm going to consider... Bram Stoker, writing Dracula in Cruden Bay, what could cut some of the things? And it just kind of comes to me once, once you get all the other crap out of your head and it's like just focused on some exercise and then 
that wonderful feeling. And I know you get it too, John, after a good workout, you sit back and relax. And that's, you know, the endorphins kind of kick in. It's the right. same thing in sport. It helps in the writing too. Just get, get into good headspace to do it. If uh, the tra- Dracula was an athlete, which athlete do you think he'd be? What type of athlete? What sport do you think he would dabble in? I, I mean, he, he, he could do anything. I mean, the guy was like, he had the, the power of 20 men. Um, you know, I think anything he wanted to do, I, th- I think it would be cool to think that he would have done something like modern pentathlon, you know, ride the horse, sword fight. Of course, they didn't have pistols in the days, but, you know, so right. what? But, you know, get, you know, had to swim across the Argus River, you know, or run. Mind you, the guy could float, the guy could fly. So who knows? <laughs> he, he would do whatever he wants. And I tell you one thing, he'd have a hard time passing the doping test because, you know, when they decided to take some either urine or blood from him, he probably wouldn't be too, too happy about right. that. Or they'd look at this stuff and say, what the heck is this? It's superpower blood that's not allowed in the Olympics. And so yeah. a story that a lot of people don't know is that in 2016, after the world tour ended for the latest Nickelback run, uh, I had about two weeks to kill. So two of my two, two good buddies from the tour, uh, Gordon and Rob, we both decided, hey, we should travel somewhere cool. So we picked Romania. We've obviously been infatuated with the vampires. Uh, a lot of stories and movies we watch on the tour buses with Vlade Paler on History Channel, Ghost Hunters, all that stuff. Uh, and so we kind of decided, hey, we're going to go to Romania for two weeks. We're going to do all the Vlad stuff we could do. We're going to go see the Hoya Bachu forest, uh, all this stuff. Uh, so we stayed in Sibiu, Brasov, Romania, everywhere we, we could. The Christmas markets were awesome. Uh, but it was just kind of surreal that something that obviously the real history of Vlade Paler, but then what Brob did with the creating the, the lore and history of the, the Dracula, that even to this day, people in the thousands and thousands go to these areas to get a glimpse of what this history could have been or was. And I kind of reached out to you in 2016. Well, I did. And basically say, hey, I, we just saw this. I, okay, so what it was, we actually saw this thing where, hey, spend the night in Vlad the Impaler's castle. You can sleep in a coffin. You can do this. And we're all kind of like, this doesn't even, what? So I kind of reached out blindly to you say, hey, this is who we are. Any advice on what to check out? Because I figured with a name like that, uh, you would probably have the ideas where to go. And so <laughs> the places you actually sent us were like the real kind of like, at least in general areas of real stuff really happened as opposed to, what people like to tend to say, oh, this is this castle. Well, it really wasn't. Uh, but so how we met was really awesome. And I, and I kind of want to jump into it. How did you, or how, how do you feel about the, your family legacy that even to this day that there are people that literally travel to these places in, in search or of whatever they're looking for, uh, all based on the lore of Dracula? Well, I, I think it's really cool that, you know, what, what my great-granduncle Bram Stoker started in 1897 is still driving, obviously, book sales, movies, streaming, and of course, tourism to, to, co- to go to Romania, to go to Ireland, to go to Whitby, England. You know, it's, it's, it's all these places where he researched the book, where he wrote the book, but also this, this sort of mythical land that he found, which is obviously, as you well know, it's not mythical after all, it's very real. Um, but the connections that he made, John, were, were so interesting. Um, and people still to this day aren't exactly sure. He didn't leave a biography and said, this is exactly what I meant. Um, he left 125 pages of notes in the Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia. The typescript for Dracula, the Paul Allen estate owns in Seattle. 
there is a journal that I actually found of Brahms in his great grandson's attic in the Isle of Wight. Uh, there's one interview that he gave to uh, a writer, Jane Stoddard, a couple of months after he wrote Dracula. And there is, you know, a, a trove of letters in different archives, some of the stuff in the Stoker family papers. So to answer this question, it's going to be a little long winded, but it's like putting together this, this massive puzzle to figure out where did Bram Stoker find his info? And you know, to what extent is it true that Bram Stoker used Vlad Dracula III, Vlad the Impaler, as his model for his count? So let's back up just a little bit and, and say this. When I got that email from you, it was, it was very cool because I was over in Transylvania, which is a province of Romania, and I was working for the Airbnb crew as they were putting on, as you mentioned, night at Dracula's castle. And as, as many people know, Dracula's castle um, is kind of loosely associated with Brand Castle. There is, there is no strong records that say Vlad the Impaler ruled there, lived there. He most likely visited there because it was a strategic point in the areas that right. he ruled when he did back in the you know, 14, 1500s. So this, this could easily have been you know, connected to him. I have found out that it is definitely connected to Bram Stoker's research for Dracula because two books that Bram listed in his notes from the Rosenbach Museum he was, like a, he was like a good college professor or a student. He listed all of the books that he used for his research for the writing. And, those, and, and two of them, one by Charles Bonner, the other by Elizabeth Maciuccelli, had sketches of Brand Castle. At those days, it was called Toursburg Castle. So, and it's the only castles that are in any of the books that he used for his research. And when you look at how Bram described in writing his fictional castle Dracula, these two sketches look exactly like the way he described them. So in my mind, that's like a lot of good circumstantial evidence that leads towards this was his model. And of course, the people that manage the Habsburg family and their descendants yeah. who manage Bram Castle, they love to agree with that because it is the number one tourist attraction in Romania. It is very well preserved. Uh, it has an interesting history with Queen Marie, uh, but also was taken over by the communists at, at, for a number of years and it's been given back the family. Well, this is where Airbnb was putting on this big event and I was hired to come and host it. And of course, they, the way you would get to spend the night in the castle is you had to write a 500 character essay saying why we should spend the night in the castle. And I got the most incredible emails from so many people. Oh, Dacre, I'll do anything to spend the night with you in the castle. You know, just, just pick me. Well, <laughs> number one, I was not the only guy going through 88,000 entries yes. to spend the night. It was, that was spread out over all the infrastructure of Airbnbs, all the different languages, of course. The team that I was working with, we had to go through about 2,000 of them, the finalists. But that day that your email came in, I laughed because it was like, I had people thinking, yeah, Dacre Stoker lives in the castle. Oh, it's the Stoker castle, or it's Bram, B-R-A-M castle, as right. opposed to B-R-A-N castle. 
So I got this one from you and I said, oh, this is so cool. The guy who's in charge of security for Nickelback, they want to come and check this thing out. And uh, how do I tell them that like, it's not my castle. I'm not going to be here year round. I'm here for a little bit. But then I read through the email and you and I went back and forth and I, I understood what you wanted. And, and I get the same thing by people a lot. They want to know where are the places associated with Vlad the Impaler, which, which I told you, Ponari Fortress is his real place. Targovish Day, there's a palace in Bucharest. But then there's the Bram Stoker places that he got from the maps and the different books that he used for his research. And that, of course, is Oreda, Bistritza. And then this place up in the mountains, 400 miles north of Brand Castle, he actually left coordinates in his notes in the Rosenbach Museum that show the exact location, which happens to be on an extinct volcano where he wanted to place <laughs> the final action in the story and his fictional castle. So what you have to imagine and what I want your listeners to imagine, John, is Bram saw a perfect, perfectly good looking castle, very gothic looking, very, you know, sort of foreboding and evil. He simply picked it up and put it 400 miles to the north and east in the location that he needed it to be, ironically, right next to the Borgo Pass. And people think, oh, that's a made up name. Oh, that's perfect for a Dracula novel. No, there is really the Borgo Pass. And if you read the story and look how long it took, Jonathan Harker in the carriage, Hans de Roos, a friend of mine, figured it out and realized, yep, that's got to be the right place. And the map coordinates agree. And the final thing is, before I get off this, is the volcano that was there. There was a good reason why Bram Stoker placed it on a volcano, because back in the Victorian era, people believed that the volcanoes were sort of portals to hell, the home of the devil. And this is, again, the books in the London Library point towards Bram choosing a devil, a devil incarnate, you know, to be his Count Dracula. And another reason why we get back to Vlad Dracula's really interesting and horrifying sort of history is, yeah, he was a ruler back you know, in the medieval days when atrocities were normal, but this guy was above and beyond, so, you know, right. boiling people, skinning people, impaling people, all these kind of, you know, uh, different tactics to scare the heck out of people, to unify. And the only way that they could survive as a teeny little country against the massive Ottoman Empire across the Black Sea was to unify. And, and, and they were actually protecting parts of Europe the Christian parts of Europe from the invading Ottomans because Vlad the Impaler was able to unify these people. That's the short version. But Bram read his history in, again, two of these books in the London Library and realized that's the guy. That's a good backstory. I'm now going to make him a vampire, place him over into Mount Israel in the Kalamani National Park. He never even went there, but right. this works for my fictional novel. So that's, that's long-winded on Lots of bits and pieces were put together. It's how you and I met as, as you were doing the same thing I'm doing, is you were interested with Vlad the Impaler, his history, and you want to experience it. Well, I go there frequently. I research the heck out of it. And now I'm able to you know, bring people on tours to go see it, enjoy it just like you did. Right. I, growing up, I always, I mean, as I get older, I grew to kind of 
appreciate the history of it obviously more, but when you see like the images of the guys' heads on pikes or that famous road going up to the castle where all the bodies are on stakes and there's something very brutal to it. Uh, but I, it's, it is, I'm glad you talked about it because I could imagine if, if, if there are notes where I'm kind of geeky out now where Brahm is kind of like, well, if I can't do Vlad the Impaler, who, who are the other people I could have based this story on? Like, it's very fascinating to me that Vlad, like Brahm did this actual research, but this guy, this real guy is a great basis for the idea of Dracula. It's super fascinating to me. Yeah, and, and, and he used the history. I mean, he went deep into the history of Vlad when there's the scene uh, in the book. Also, it's depicted in the 92 Coppola movie really quite nicely when, when uh, Gary Oldman says, you know, this is who I am. You know, the blood of, of Attila runs through these veins. Of course, you know, John, I would think if it wasn't Vlad, it could have been Attila the Hun, who was, had similar characteristics as a bloodthirsty ruler. Um, and, and but that's you know that's the sign of the times. That's how these guys had to rule. There was a, there was a, a couple of other probably opportunities. But here's the kicker, I believe. When he saw in a book by William Wilkinson that the name Dracula means devil, I think that was like the home run. He needed his devil. He you know he was he created the story Dracula as a story of good versus evil where people, you know, the band of heroes had to rely on their faith to get through. They were faced with, you know, the, the most almighty, you know, evil of all time. Their faith in God and their faith in each other had to protect them. Well, who's the biggest foe? It's the devil. So Bram was looking for a devil. He was looking for a, the place of the devil, which is a volcano. And two of these books said that Vlad the Impaler was known as the devil. That's the guy. So that, right. that's what brings it all together. One of the things I stress, especially in my job, when it comes to note-taking and uh, researching a client, stuff like that, but especially when it comes to the guests I have on Spear Talk, I actually have to spend time researching. It, obviously, if I know the person or if I grew up watching the movies or I read their books, it, it helps me kind of in my research. But if I really don't know someone, I have to dig deep and I don't want to ask the same questions uh, or get the same kind of answers that the guests are usually, usually saying or spewing out. And so... You, you, a lot of the research you do is very, it, it would be very intimidating to someone even like myself who loves notes because you actually have to kind of go different languages, travel the world, dig into a finite detail. And so how do you kind of get ready when it comes to time to research something? Is there a set process you have to do or what is kind of like your, how do you attack a subject you're not familiar with and head on into the, in terms of the research? Uh, you know, it, it's again, that's that's kind of both of our athletic backgrounds coming out. It's like, how do you get prepared for the big right. game? And that, that's the way I look at it. And, and what I do is I will reread parts of Dracula. I'll reread parts of Bram's other stories because I look at that's his that's what he's left us. OK, if I'm heading over to Ireland or, or Philadelphia or Seattle or even to Transylvania to, on a specific project because I'm focused on, you know, lo looking for something or I'm aware because I've seen in the Trinity College archives, there's some letters that I haven't seen yet. Now, recently, I've been made aware of some letters in a certain archive, which I can't disclose just yet, that shows a lot of interest that Bram Stoker had in the occult. Oh, wow. So... And the person that told me about these said it what the dates of these letters were not just between 1890 
when he was writing Dracula in 1897 when Dracula was published. So that is like, hmm, okay. He has more of an interest in supernatural, spiritualism, other things of the occult than just writing Dracula. What does that tell me about my great granduncle? I better start looking in some of his other books with that mission in mind. So boom, what do I find? A letter by Arthur Conan Doyle, the, the author of Sherlock Holmes, but he was also a known spiritualist. He kind of went off the deep end with the paranormal. Um, but then I, I find the connection that they were friends. He writes a letter to Bram Stoker saying, I congratulate you on Dracula. You know, it's the best novel of diablerie I've ever read, which is obviously the devil. And then I see that Bram Stoker actually wrote an article in a paper about Conan Doyle. And because that article, Bram and his wife were invited to his second wedding. So out of, out of just even my own preparation to go look at these letters on the occult, I realized a connection and a friendship was made between Conan Doyle and Stoker. And then that leads me to another connection between Bram Stoker and Mark Twain. Mark Twain was wow. very interested in spiritualism. Um, and and uh, they were neighbors in Chelsea. So it's almost like the deeper I go down a rabbit hole, the more I find. So I have to sometimes pull back and say, whoa, wait a sec, focus on you know, the, 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 the things are going to take you there. And, and But that gets me by reading his stuff and rereading the notes, and sometimes even in the airplane or listening to his books on audio. Then when I get there and I spend two or three days at a specific library looking over stuff, then I'm in the right headspace for it. I don't have other things getting in the way, clouding up my vision. It's I, Right now, I'm trying to picture Brob right now in a library with the technology you have access to today. How much, how fascinated, do you think he'd be fascinated by the way if you're able to Google something or the way these libraries are now or the research or microfilm and stuff like that? Like, do you ever kind of wonder, like, how would he be intimidated by the current uh, climate in terms of when it comes to research? Or would he be someone that would utilize it to the best interest to really fulfill more of his research? Well, I, I got to tell you this. Not a lot of folks know this. He was the real geek himself when it came to the oh, technology. That's awesome. I'm, here's what I'm going to share with you guys right now. Okay. In just alone in the novel Dracula, he inserted these, these pieces of technology. And it is at the time, it was as cutting edge as, you know, the iPhone 12, right. you know, the, the latest, the 5G, latest, whatever. Right. Okay. Yeah. He had, do you remember in Dracula, he had Dr. Seward talking into a recording phonograph and they recorded on a wax cylinder that was cutting edge okay uh, he also i mean that was only invented in 1887 he started writing the novel in 1890 that's only three <laughs> years old mina harker she was actually typing on a portable typewriter which again invented in 1873 so still very new stuff but it was only you know, in the last couple of years uh, of Bram writing the novel, that women, it was okay for them to work on typewriters. So that was cutting edge. Bram had Harker bring photographs, though in those days called a Kodak. Kodak yep. cameras were only invented in 1889. He had Harker bring photographs to Count Dracula to show him his properties that he buy. Bram was utilizing 
blood transfusions, which were fairly new at the time. Mesmerism, which is a, the, an expanding science, you know, that was mental telepathy type thing between when the blood was exchanged. Uh, there was a searchlight in, in Whitby, England, which was very new. Edison had only created this big searchlight in 1882 to help the, the ships get into the harbor during a storm. So would Bram have been interested in new technology? Absolutely. He even, I'll tell you a Star Wars moment in Bram Stoker's life to show you how techie he was. In the play Faust that was put on at the Lyceum Theater that Bram was the manager of, Faust was obviously a very popular play yes. at the time. It was about Mephistopheles, the devil's assistant, which Henry Irving played, which I think also contributed to Bram wanting his uh, Dracula to be a lot like Henry Irving on stage. But Bram pulled in a guy who was an expert in electricity. And for your listeners, folks, this is, we're talking 18, uh, 1890, eight, you know, 1887, 1880, electricity was just being introduced into street lights and so on. So what this guy did was they invented a way on stage during a sword fighting scene to have the blades electrified and the actors wearing rubber gloves so they wouldn't be shocked. So when the blades hit, they would emit these blue sparks, just like two lightsabers in Star Wars hitting, you know, 120 years later. So this was so high tech to have that incredible um, electrical scene on stage back in the late 1800s. Again, he was so techy. So yeah, he would have he would have he would have been googling the heck out of everything. Instead, <laughs> he goes to the London Library, and right. this is this is a very cool story. Um, that only is probably the latest discovery in the Dracula world. Just two years ago, a guy called me from the London Library who was the head of fundraising and he was a real Dracula fanatic. He had purchased a copy of the Dracula notes that had been published by two friends of mine, Elizabeth Miller and Robert 18 Basang. And again, in the back of the notes, it showed all the books that Bram used for his uh, research. Now, this guy, Philip Spedding, knew that Bram was a member of the London Library. But unlike lending libraries, you know, you know where you used to have that little sleeve in the back yep. with the card and you'd have the yep. date stamp. and yep. Exactly. They didn't have that because it was a private library. They didn't need to. What happens is you'd go to the book aisles, you take out the books you wanted, you go to the man at the desk and he'd say, yes, Mr. Stoker will write down those books. When can you bring them back and so on? Well, Spedding looked at the list of these books and said, I wonder if any of these are still here. And much to his amazement, he pushed the cart through these hundreds and hundreds of aisles in the London Library and found that 28 books that Bram used wow. for his research were still in circulation in the library. And he quickly pulled them all off, put them in this big massive stack, brought them back to his office and started looking through them. And he had read the Dracula notes. He was quite familiar with them. And what blew him away was when he started looking through the book and saw that there was some pencil marks in the margins. There were some check marks. There were some underlining, and it was more than that, John. It was certain things that showed up in the Dracula notes. 
that were underlined. So he thought, my God, I wonder if Bram Stoker did this. And so he contacted Robert 18 Bissang and me because he knew we were working on an annotated Dracula together because we've been in touch with him. And he said, guys, do you have any images of any of Bram Stoker's own books without really letting us know what he was on to? And I said, well, I happen to have one of them. It's the same book that Bram used to reduce 30,000 words from the Dracula published in 1897 to the first abridged edition. They wanted to shorten up the edition to make a first paperback in 1901. I said, I've been loaned that by my cousins and it's got all Bram's little notes in it. Bingo. I was able then to, he sent me some photos of the books in the London Library with the notes written in the margins. And they were exactly the same kind of notes that were in my book, it was Bram's. And furthermore, he said, well, that confirms it, but I didn't want to tell you this. Two of those books were books that Bram Stoker's son donated to the library that were Bram's after Bram died. And that proved that Bram did this same style of underlining and note-taking to his own books. So now we have two sources, Dacre's book and Noel Stoker's book to show that the, this in fact was Bram Stoker's wow. writing in these books. So at first I said, well, I'm, I'm a little embarrassed because obviously my famous relative author of Dracula has defaced your books. He says, oh no, 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 don't worry. He said, this is now proof that our library is, is sort of ground zero for the research of Dracula. So, I mean, that, that was so freaking cool. So long-winded answer yet again. I'm sorry, I'll do that no, a lot on your it. show because all this stuff is like a rabbit hole. So of course, Robert 18 Basang and I said, we've got to go and see these books. So we, we, you know, in a month's time, we were able to book flights, get over there, take pictures and look through these books. And typical me, <laughs> I got all the names of these books and went on to abe books and and purchased exactly the same editions as the ones in the london library so i could then read in my own free time the whole book and i could compare when i took photos of those pages what caught bram stoker's eye you know what was it about these books and i'll just i'll just share a couple with you because i'm just going to pull this up because it's so cool you know we all think of writers like Poe, um, Lovecraft, we know they had some issues, you know, either with yeah. control substances or depression or whatever. And sometimes that put them in the perfect headspace right. to write their most incredible horror, right? But nobody knows where did Bram Stoker really get this stuff? We know he had a troubled childhood himself and nightmares and so on. But now we know and I'll share this with you and your listeners, that a couple of the books that Bram got this information from that we got to give some credit to Dr. Herbert Mayo. His oh. family years later oh. created the Mayo Clinic. Right. But, but this doctor wrote a book called On the Truths of Popular Superstitions and in particular, Mesmerism. All right, this is a medical doctor book was published in 1851 and there was a chapter on vampirism 
a chapter on unreal ghosts, true ghosts, trance, trance sleep, <laughs> half walking and trance sleep. So to put things in perspective, remember at the top of your show, we talked about spiritualism, the occult, right? supernatural. This is something the Victorians were obsessed with just, and it hasn't changed that much. Nowadays, some of the most popular shows on TV are about paranormal you know, exploration. This is simply what they were doing back in their days when they were sort of being enlightened with science. Religion was kind of being questioned by science and people were wondering what the heck happens to the spirit and our soul after death. And a medical doctor writes a book about vampirism and he doesn't, he's not poking holes in it. He's saying that these are the reasons why people believe it to be true. Now there's another book called Superstition and Force, Essays on the Wager of Law, the Wager of Battle and Torture by a Henry Charles Lee. And, and that particular book had a, a sentence that said, volcanoes are all, have always been the object of superstitious fear. They were supposed to have been um, presided by subterranean gods. And then there's another one called the other world or glimpses of the supernatural being facts, records, and traditions relating to dreams, omens, miraculous occurrences, apparitions, wraiths, warnings, necromancy, and second sight by Reverend Frederick George Lee, a, a, a priest, a Catholic priest, writes about the other world. And he talks about the devil and his locations. And this is what drove Bram towards the volcanoes in Transylvania. So John, I could go on and on, but I'll stop there. It just gives you the example of that Bram was very into technology, but he tried to make sure that the theme of Dracula was not so distant and far away, but it was on the, you know, on the tongue of on the minds of the people that would go to the Lyceum Theater and look for scary plays, would read Gothic literature like Frankenstein, like Carmilla and other scary Gothic stuff. But what Bram did was he connected it to present consciousness written by reputable people, a priest, you know, a doctor, and he made the story seem real by bringing it to London and to Whitby. So right. I'll, I'll pause there for a minute because I'm <laughs> take a break. <laughs> no, that's uh, just fascinating. And obviously you have a sense of pride and honor to carry on the work of Brahm and all this research and the family legacy. But is there, at the beginning, I, I guess my two-part question here, how did you kind of get, how did you know you had to be the one to kind of carry on the stalker name, especially when it comes to not only the writing, but specifically Dracula and be a the spokesperson for the family. But are there ever days where you're kind of like, man, why did I take this burden on? Or, or has this always been one of those things where, hey, this is my duty now to kind of carry on the legacy of this name? Um, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, there's there's it's the small family if you if you can believe it there, you know bram was one of seven kids but only three had offspring and one that had offspring has, has no surviving um members of that branch today brams does he had a son that son had a daughter so there's no more stokers left in that family but there were three great grandsons there are two right. left and they've got children my side bram's youngest brother uh george stoker was my great-grandfather and there are six of us and we've got offspring. 
So it's not like a huge family and we're all clamoring to kind of hold the baton. It just kind of, it, it, it happened by default, really, John. My wife is really, she's a Southerner in the US and for whatever reason was really into not only her genealogy, but mine as well. And when we started finding out that there's a lot of gaps and there's one uncle, my dad died in 83 and, and there was one of his brothers still living a couple of years ago. He died two years ago, but he realized that Jenny and I were interested just in the family tree and who was whom and so on. And we also found that nobody else really was. It, it wasn't like they didn't care. They just didn't have that stick with itness to say, well, what about this guy? What about this guy? So my uncle Patrick kind of pulled me and Jenny in. And as he was beginning to wind down his life, he had this uh, congenital heart failure and it was coming on. He said, I'm gonna send you some stuff. So boxes of stuff arrived and, it, and we just got into it. And we started seeing cool connections between Dr. George Stoker, the other doctors in the family right. and Bram Stoker and, and their relationship letters back and forth. And again, it was a rabbit hole. So we decided to go up to Montreal, Canada and, and visit Patrick and he opened up all kinds of stuff for us. And that's when it really struck me is, I guess I'm the only one that really cares and I'm responsible. And as my wife turned to me and said, Dacre, if it's not you, the whole generation will go by and my children won't know and their children, it'll be lost. So we decided then and there, we've got to be, and it's almost like Patrick handed us the mantle. And literally, we, he sent us boxes of stuff. I took my scanner, my laptop, spent two days scanning all kinds of good stuff. And, and, he, and he gave me all kinds of things. And that's when I just got in. And that was probably 15 years ago. Right. And then I started using that information with other authors to fictionalize it, to get it out to the world. I, I look at this in two ways. I can give lectures, I can write articles, and that has a limited audience. But when you write it, when you use it fictionally, historical-based fiction writing, it has a huge audience. And I personally like reading guys like Ken Follett, even Clive Cussler, Tom Clancy, yeah. stuff that is real, okay? But they turn it into fiction and you end up reading the stuff and not realizing you're getting a history lesson. Um, so that, that's, that's what attracted me and that's why I do it to this day. That's what drives me is telling Bram Stoker's story through fiction or nonfiction if I need to. But I feel that somebody in the family has to kind of be the one that says, wait a sec, if you're going to talk about Bram Stoker, let's, let's talk about the truth here. So we developed a, a website called bramstokerestate.com where anybody who wants to go and look at some of the real things he did uh, is a repository for, for academics for nonfiction uh, and fiction alike. And so we're very open to sharing our information with people about that. One of the cool things, and I, my copy now, my friend's actually reading to cool the copy you sent me last year. Um, and I've always been kind of curious, would you co-author like you did for that with J.D. Barker? How, what is the process when it comes to two people working on the same book? Like, I, like obviously you guys are friends and you're, there's no ego per se, but how do you kind of, if, the, if you come to a, a passe where you're kind of like, I want to do this way, I want to do this way, how do you guys kind of hash it out where it makes sense to tell the true story you guys want to put out there? <laughs> There's always egos, no matter how good <laughs> friends you are. And you've got to have that stuff arranged in the beginning. So that's a, another excellent gotcha. question. 
And, and, and what I learned was when you start a relationship, I, I mean, it's like marriage, you know, you have a prenuptial <laughs> agreement. This was similar. You know, we, we had an arrangement that JD was a more seasoned writer. I found him because I love the way he writes. And I say, JD, right off the bat, you're going to have the final say. You're going to, it, it's got to be your voice. I'm going to give you text. I'm going to give you research. I'm going to give you an outline. We're going to talk about it every couple of days. If I don't like something the way it is, if you don't want to change it, again, you can have the final say. But that, that's the only way to make it work. Otherwise, you just you write all by yourself and then you hand it over to an editor who edits the heck out of it. But this way, I had more of a hand in it. But right from the, right from the beginning, I said, J.D., I, I recognize that this type of story needs to have a consistent voice. Now, that's not to say I didn't hand him large blocks of text specifically when it's things that I knew or felt I knew any member of my family would be saying, Matilda Stoker, Bram Stoker, the, you know, Charlotte, Bram Sr., any of the brothers. So he was great because he sort of took all my stuff. Yes, he would change, change the sentence structure, change it to make it look like it was his things. Uh, and that was fine. But for the most part, we just agreed it's his voice, his final say. And you know, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't the case in Dracula the Undead, where Ian and I wrote separate sections ourselves. Right. And, and then we paid an editor to blend it all together. So I've gone through two different ways in, in two different fictional works. In a nonfiction with Elizabeth Miller, which was Bram Stoker's Lost Journal, it was very simple because we simply wrote alternating commentary. So it was more like a, in a, my perspective on what Bram wrote, her perspective, and we didn't need to blend them. So it's all about the arrangement, what, you, what your vision is for that story and agreeing beforehand, because it's not a good time to agree it when you're halfway through. And you, <laughs> right. then you end up in a divorce. <laughs> that book is so fascinating too, because I, I'm sure there's a lot of, we already have a classic like Rob's Dracula, then you have to create a prequel that that only leads up to the original, but fits the same aesthetic of what was already out there. Like it's how you did that was super impressive and just really, really cool. It's, it's amazing how you're able to kind of seamlessly kind of create this almost multiverse universe of the lore of uh, everything he did. Well, you'll be glad to know that right now I'm working on a, a, the story of Bram Stoker writing Dracula. Oh, wow. So, almost like, okay, cool. So I, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if it's really a continuation of Dracul, but it's like, all right, he's, I, I know he wrote the story in Cruden Bay, Scotland. I've done research up there with a guy by the name of Mike Shepard. We've worked on a book together called When Brave Men Shudder, and we're working another one about Slane's castle. That's the castle Bram used for the interior of his castle, Dracula. And it's got really cool stories of its own dating back 400 years. But, it, but what I'm doing is here is Bram Stoker on his holidays and he's got to write the story. He's got his notes with him. He's got all his books in the London library. What does he go through to actually write it? What sort of headspace? Just like the questions you're asking me, what headspace do you get into? Um, so I'm trying to be very conscious of allowing readers like yourself who have enjoyed Dracula, Dracul, to sort of seamlessly feel like this is a continuation of what is it like 
for Bram Stoker to write this story. Obviously, he writes it in the epistolary style. That's what J.D. Barker and I did in Dracul. And it has you know, a now section, which is epistolary, and other sections is narrative. But it gives you the idea that, oh my god, this is real. And we're trying to do the same thing in Cruden-based Scotland, but with a, with a different author named, named uh, Dr. Leverett Butts, who I've written a couple of short stories with. One was actually recently published. I was very excited to publish something in Weird Tales magazine that just came out about six awesome. months ago. And it was the story of the last week of Bram Stoker's life and what secrets he doesn't want to take to the grave. Again, based on reality, but things that I know he took to the grave and had to tell somebody. <laughs> and obviously you do a lot of those, uh, conventions, uh, writers, symposiums with other authors, but how cool is it for you to have different authors um, that come up to you or talk to you and be like, hey, because of Brahms writing is why I wanted to write horror and stuff like that. Like, it must be so fulfilling to be part of this legacy and to keep building upon his, his legacy where kids and writers and people today are still inspired by the works of Brown. It, it, it is, it is incredible. I mean, it's, it's, it's just like, you know, an athlete that you look at and you say, geez, I want to be a quarterback like Tom Brady, or I want to play hockey, right. like, you know, Mary Lemieux or Wayne Gretzky. It, when, when I go to these conventions and people say, Hey, Dacre, you got to come over here for a minute. I just got to tell you that, you know, I've read Dracula like 50 times. I didn't get it the first 20 times. My God, now I do. And I just, it's so incredible. It just means so much to me. And it's like, yeah, I, I, I get it. And I, and I see it through so many people, people's eyes who I respect as writers who then say that my relative had an impact on them. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that in that field. You know, that, that's, that is really cool and very, very gratifying. I think growing up, I've, I've always been fascinated, obviously, with horror, but the original, the Dracula, was, it was almost intimidating to me, almost like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Uh, there's books like that, The Art of War, where it wasn't until I was in college or older where I kind of regret not reading these type of works earlier. And so for someone that isn't into reading but wants to read, what advice would you give someone that, hey, this, yes, it's a incredible piece of work but it shouldn't actually scare you into reading it like i find that sometimes for me i don't uh i have a lot of regret like there's a lot of books and stuff i wish i read a lot earlier in my youth but i was just too kind of i'm not scared or man i can't read brown stork it's, it's above my pay grade and so what advice yeah. do you have to people that want to read the book but maybe don't have the they don't feel like they can read it that's a good point because at first, when you open up the pages of Dracula or, or, or even Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, they're obviously they're written in another era. Yes. So the language isn't right. easy for us. Um, and and I've, you know, there's a couple you know, of, of my nephews that just ha haven't read it. And they're very active guys, very sports oriented. And it's like, come on, <laughs> you, you just got to find the time, sit down and read the thing. And I, and I finally gave up. And so I said, okay, you know what? Listen to it on audio. When you're driving in your car to go off, driving down to Florida to go fishing or something, just listen to the damn book on audio. Okay, that, that's one way out. The other is most of these things come out in graphic novels these days. Go get the graphic novel. You know, go, go watch, you know, a movie. You know, the 92 Coppola is somewhat similar. The 1977 BBC version is very similar. Um, so do that. And then when you're ready, when, you, when you've got the right time, when you're in the right 
space, then read it and you will regret it <laughs> like you, John, and like right. many others. Jeez, I should have read it earlier. It's not that bad. And the other thing is reading something that's a heavy book like Dracula. I suggest people don't, don't read it and take it too seriously. Don't try to read and understand every word. You'll get bogged down. One of the things Bram Stoker does that drives me crazy. He was, he was so persnippity on the dialects that he wanted to get absolutely right for authenticity that when you try to read this Yorkshire fisherman, Captain Swales, or any of the other dialects in, in the novel, it's like it slows you down like crazy if you try to figure out what every word means. Don't worry about it. Just move on, get the general idea, and then later on, the, it'll make sense. So don't, you know, don't, don't let the book slow, slow you down. Don't let it blow your confidence. Just in, try to enjoy it for what it is and look for these other, other, other uh, mediums to read it in or enjoy it in. And I think I grew up, obviously, I love watching movies and the, the Gary Oldman, Keanu Reeves, uh, Anthony Hopkins version of the Dracula movie. I, I was like, man, if I, if I watch this, I love the movie. Uh, I love the violence. I love the storytelling. I don't need to read the book. But when, now when I go back and read the book, and then obviously read are cool, like there's so much they didn't put in that movie. Um, for, I guess for obvious reasons, length of time and just some stuff they thought general audience wouldn't be really into. And one of the cool things at the onset of the pandemic, I did these Netflix watch parties and you were one of the guests for, uh, we watched this movie series Underworld, the first movie and this other stuff too. And so I guess for you, like how often do you find yourself watching different literations of vampires, like, or movies or lore, or comic books, or is something they brought up, what would he think of Twilight series? What would he think of these different versions of Salem's Lot or Near Dark or Blade and stuff like that? Like how would you, how do you and how would Rob kind of feel about these ideas of vampires today? Well, I mean, obviously he would have been absolutely blown away, you know, when you consider <laughs> that, you know, moving pictures uh, had, 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 hadn't even come out back when he died in 1912. But, uh, and Dracula didn't, hadn't even gone on stage yet, but, but he was a theatrical guy. Okay, he managed the theater for 27 years and him and Irving back in those days, they used to take different versions of plays and they'd edit them and adapt them for their stage, for their actors, for their costumes. So it was not that unusual to have a work that people identified with and and it was then changed visually to give a different version of it. So many people contact me and say, oh my God, have you seen the new BBC Netflix Dracula? Bram Stoker would be flipping in his grave. It's not, nothing like the book. Well, the first thing I said is, first of all, if all the Draculas were just like the book, they would have made maybe two or three of them in the last 50 years. We, we, we wouldn't be still having them. And, I, and then secondly, I said, just imagine also how cool Bram would think if his work stimulated someone like Stephanie Meyer to create an offshoot of his Dracula into sort of paranormal romance, you know, vampiric romance for teenagers, you know, True Blood, Vampire yep. Diaries, Stephen King, Anne Rice. Just to imagine it's, it's like you're, you know, the circus master and all these different iterations 
have something to do with your creation, how satisfying that would be. You might not like every single animal in the circus, but you know you had something to do with creating them. And now you sit back and watch them take on a life of their own, develop their own fan base, but realize that the common core has something to do with your brainchild that you spent seven years researching and writing. I think he would have been satisfied and I'm the same way. You know, when I look at these, I go, well, okay, that, oh, cool. That part came from the book. Oh, that part came from, you know, Jim Hart, who's the screenwriter for the 92 Coppola. I think he did something really cool where he took some Vlad the Impaler folklore at the very beginning of the novel and had the wife jump out of the, out of the castle tower to commit suicide so she wasn't uh, captured by the invading Ottomans. And when she did, that's a suicide. And so when Vlad came back from fighting that, that time, he couldn't have her buried in a, in a Christian burial. So he revolted against the church, stabbed the cross, drank the blood, converted into a vampire. In three minutes, Jim Hart did something that you know, blew away the world. Oh, that's a very logical explanation why Vlad the Impaler became a vampire. In the novel, Bram Stoker simply said he learned his, his dark arts at the, at the Sholomonts, the school of the dark arts in, in, in these mountains um, near, near Sibiu, where you were actually. Right. Um, so, you, you know, everybody has free license as an artist to be inspired and take kind of cool things and, and use them as they will. And, and I, again, I think, I think I can speak for Bram by saying it's, it's pretty cool what in 124 years, what works, collective works have been inspired by, by his novel, Dracula. I've always been fascinated by the idea of obviously good versus evil. And you create an atrocity or, uh, I say atrocity, but I can actually sympathize with a lot of, a lot of stuff that Dracula had to do or does. But would you have to create the opposite of him, like a Van Helsing or a character that's pure good or good at heart? I've always been fascinated how uh, so much could go into creating the ultimate bad guy. But to be uh, really successful, you almost need the very, uh, very good, good guy or the opposites, how they, they attract to each other. And I, that's why I also I really love about that Brahm stuff, because he every character he created, even if it was a, it seemed like a passing kind of note or just a random thing or fact or how they moved he fleshed out these people to be real people relatable and all to fit to kind of serve the bigger picture which i thought was just awesome i i agree and, and when you consider there was a lot of edits in that book because it was a long book yeah. in its day paper was expensive um it takes a while reading dracula to figure out how all those characters what their backstories were but Bram didn't waste many words to help you figure out that Quincy Morris, Dr. Seward, and Arthur Holmwood had actually been on hunting expeditions, military things before in different countries. They had a pre-existing relationship, how Lucy and Mina had been childhood friends before. But then you mentioned Van Helsing, which is interesting. And we realized that he was obviously a professor of Jonathan Seward, Dr. Seward, way back before. But then you begin to realize some of his other expertise um, in the supernatural, in the dark arts, and his, the fact that he was not only 
a, a professor, but a doctor and a lawyer at the same time. Right. So Bram kind of brushed the surface. And, it, and, it, and to me, I think there was something in his mind that, you know, that, that was going to be a sequel later on and to further flesh out those characters and further understand that. And of course, that's, that's what Ian Holt and I did. And I won't spoil it, but Drac the Undead, you learn a heck of a lot about these characters 25 years after Dracula ends and what happens to these people. Um, in Dracul being the prequel, we decide to, to use Bram's ideas of who could have been those people that inspired him. His brother right. was very much like Dr. Seward, Dr. William uh, Thornley Stoker, and his sister, uh, Matilda, you know, she was a lot like Mina. And, 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 and other characters, obviously, Arminius Vanbury had qualities a lot like Van Helsing. So these are people in Bram's life that he used. Um, so yeah, characterization is one of Bram's strong points. He gives us enough to uh, make us really think about who these guys are and you know, potentially were they real people. Now, you, I know next year in 2022 is the 125th anniversary of Bram's book, Dracula. What plans do you have in terms of such a momentous, and again, it's crazy to think that it's been 125 years and still to this day, here we are talking about just an incredible legacy that you get to carry on. And so what are you kind of your plans and goals for next year? Well, there, there's a lot of things in the works, Mike. Uh, currently I'm working with the fellow Chris McCauley to uh, create some graphic novels. We've done one already, which was uh, The Virgin's Embrace, which is Bram's, one of Bram's stories called the squad that we turned into Virgin's Embrace, which is a really cool, you know, a horror story. But we're actually working on one as we speak, um, which is the cholera horror story that I know impacted Bram Stoker as a young boy. It's a story of his mother surviving the cholera epidemic in Ireland when she was 14 years old and she witnessed misdiagnosis and premature burial of people and her neighbor dragging her way out of a grave, a mass grave. Jeez. So that story she wrote and sent to Bram at his request when he was a, a you know, middle-aged guy and he used in a story and, and uh, we're creating that in a graphic novel. And, and also, you know, there's a couple other games and things that come out, but I think the, the, the most significant things to talk about here on this show is I'm planning a series of visits with people, you know, paying customers tours two places that impacted Bram Stoker's writing of Dracula. One of them is Western Ireland, where this cholera epidemic happened, and Dublin, Ireland, obviously where Bram was born, where he was raised, where he went to school, where he did a lot of research, where he was a champion athlete. And then obviously Whitby, England, where Bram took one holiday there for two weeks and was so impressed with Whitby that he set chapter six, seven, and eight there. And, and, and it's like 20... 20 pages of notes about Whitby and, and it's like such a cool town to go see. So we got to go there. And then further up the coast in Scotland is the town called Cruden Bay where Bram spent 13 summer holidays. And of those 13, he spent three of them writing Dracula. And we're going to visit there. Slane's castle is a ruin now, yep. but it is the castle that we can visit, the ruin of it, and we can see the octagonal room that Bram featured in chapter two, the, the internal floor plan of Castle Dracula 
on Mount Israel in Transylvania, that castle's floor plan was based on Slane's castle. And then we'll go to Romania because one of the, the coolest and latest things that I've done uh, with the help of Hans de Roos who deciphered the Dracula notes and found these map coordinates. And as many times as, as we chatted earlier about going to Transylvania, only recently have I focused on this region in the northeastern corner called the Kalamanalui National Park. And it's, it's a beautiful natural area. It doesn't smell or, or <laughs> give you the impression of Gothic horror like some of the castles, John, that you and I visited because there are no castles, at least in this area, but the volcano is there and the map coordinates that Bram Stoker chose for the location of his castle is there. So I'll be taking people to stay at a very cool bed and breakfast, hike in, and now I have a plaque with the permission of the National Forest there placed on the rock face uh, where Bram had the, uh, chose the final battle between the band of heroes and Dracula, where the Bowie knife was stuck into the heart of Count Dracula. And we know what happens there. It was a Bowie knife, not a stake. So he only crumbled into dust and then his throat was slit, not totally decapitated. So as far as I'm concerned, that was an escape. Yeah. He escaped in dust. Now, furthermore, what I will say because all this kind of comes back together, John. Remember we talked about Paul Allen and the Dracula typescript? Yes. One of the things that J.D. Barker and I saw when we were there was right after the count crumbles into dust, Bram had planned and wrote that a volcano erupted right after that time, scared off the gypsies, Dracula was gone in a cloud of dust, and the band of heroes had to basically run for it to save their own lives, but it brought down Castle Dracula. For whatever reason, that tumultuous scene that crumbled everything was edited out of the book. But it gives me great strength in my resolve that that was the location based on the coordinates that he put in his, in his notes because Bram Stoker was so detail-oriented if he was going to have a volcanic eruption at the end of his story, my God, there's going to be a volcano there. Right. And so I've been there, I've seen the volcano, and I've also seen that part of the effects of the volcano that did blow its top thousands of years ago was that it opened up a sulfur deposits in the mountain. And it had been turned into a sulfur mine, which is now closed. But the sulfur... When I mentioned this to one of the guys up there, he pulled in a guy that used to work in the mine and he brought us down into the mine. It was an open wow. pit mine, hammered open a rock, took out his Bic lighter and lit the sulfur in the rock and it burned a blue flame. Wow. Yeah. And my little mind was ticking going, oh my God, I wonder if this is the source of the, the folklore flame. of the blue flame and Dracula leading to buried treasure. So of course I went back looking through all the books from the London library and there, there it was, you know, this blue flame leading to buried treasure. And I go back to, you know, this, this is all by email and so on going back to these guys going, was there any, you know, fires in the area? They say, of course we had forest fires by lightning 
you know, they'd ignite fires. And yes, whenever they did burn, the sulfur mm -hmm. would burn blue. And I said, well, what's the treasure? They said, well, the sulfur is the treasure. The sulfur at the time was heavily sought after because it was a major component of gunpowder. Right. So that's the treasure. And they also said that the Carpathian Mountains have great gold deposits there as well. So, you know, they say all, all good folklore, all good myths have their beginnings in some kind of truth. I think I stumbled on that truth. And, you know, the, the 125th will, will take me to, to help bring some of the hardcore fans that want to see these places, experience it, uh, get, get to kind of hike in these mountains, get to see some of the other castles and enjoy uh, what, you know, what Bram Stoker read about, even though he never went there himself. He lived through the books. And now I can take people there to live it in real. That sounds like an incredible time. Hopefully, hopefully my schedule lines up where I can actually get over there. If I already am over there, uh, it'd be really awesome. So before I let you go, obviously you're on Facebook, Instagram, but if people want to find out what's your website again, uh, where can they kind of reach out to you? Where can they buy your, I know you have an awesome store. It's all Dracula and uh, Dacker related to the books and bobbleheads and ties, which are badass. Uh, so like, how can people reach out to you and find you? Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for asking. Uh, because at the end of the day, yeah, we're in it to sell books and stuff and, and spread the word. So you can go to bramstokerestate.com. Uh, that actually is uh, one of the websites we run. It's got a signature store in it with, with some of the books. Um, dakerstoker.com, information about my tours and so on. And then, of course, on Facebook, I post all the things that, uh, you know, the, the most recent things that I'm doing. So follow me there. And also go to Stoker Macaulay on Facebook, because uh, that's that's Stoker and Macaulay on Facebook. That's all the games, the, the documentary we're working on, all the books we're working on. That also gives you up to date information. And, and John, I just want to thank you because, you know, that that email you sent back in 2016, we've been friends ever since. You've helped me with these uh, watch parties of different movies. I, I know you're a know you're a serious fan. And uh, every time I see your your logo, you know, the spear talks, I can only think of the spear of Vlad the Impaler impaling his enemies. Uh, you're not an enemy, you're a friend, but I want to be on your side of the spear, not on the other side, buddy. No, I, uh, again, I appreciate this. I appreciate your friendship. And uh, I, I guess to kind of wrap it up, like, obviously, the pandemic and stuff had to get creative. Um, obviously, the first part of the couple of books I read, just out of pure boredom, like what the hell is going on? Uh, but it told me, I always had that inkling where I'm like, oh, I don't have time to read. Or you can relate it to fitness. I don't have time to work out for 30 minutes a day. I'm too busy. No one is too busy to work out. No one is too busy to stay healthy. No one is too busy to read 30 minutes a day before you fall asleep. It's a lot better than watching TV. And so and if there's one positive I can pull out of the pandemic. And there are a bunch that my love of reading has helped. And reading a book like Dracul kind of re i always grew up reading the stephen king books but now i kind of lost sight of them uh last couple of years because again i'm too busy uh but i went back and reread a lot of my favorite books and uh a lot of stuff because of you the friendship with you and um that really is i think reading is such an important thing and i hope more people if someone watches this podcast or listens to it and i hope they're not big into reading that they're like you know what i'm gonna read the dracul or i'm gonna read uh a short story or whatever it is, it, that's, that's a win for me. And so thank you again for being on here. Here, here, here's to that. Thanks, John.
Take care. Thank you all for checking out this week's episode. Once again, I'm John. If you liked what you heard and saw today, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And check out our brand new merch store with hats, coffee mugs, t-shirts, other cool stuff coming down the pipeline. Again, thank you all for support. Be safe and see you next week. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's take this outside. A new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's take this outside. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca.